All right, this is the fifth section of an expanded version of my master's thesis. Uh, and I'm calling this on saint stories and the self. We've already discussed the problems of modernity, the critiques of modernity through Adorno and Horkheimer. Uh, we've also talked about Charles Taylor's view of communal iterative reasoning and the best account principle. From there, we, we moved on to Newman's view of the illative sense. And essentially, at this point, we understand there are problems in our world because of this disconnection between vision and action. We have a great vision for achieving a utopic end, um, but unfortunately, our action has been hamstrung by the removal of myth, which is a properly basic, um, essential aspect of how we participate in the world as, as human beings, as selves. So to extend this further, we understand that myth is important. We've talked about the myth of Socrates, of the, the pantheon, as it were. And now we're going to move into something explicitly Christian, the mythoi of St. Francis. I'll talk in a later section about how I mean that word here, but I also want to keep in mind something that I did not make explicit when I wrote the thesis. It only really comes through because of the title on saint stories, which is a play on words based on, you guessed it, Tolkien's writing on fairy stories. Uh, how, how I'm meaning myth here is, and I won't go into it too much, just more about how how Tolkien might understand myth, the, the land of fairy, as it were. Um, there's something real about it. It, it, isn't, it isn't fake. Um, it isn't a fairy tale in that sense. Um, or as how is, uh, one person describes it, like, like the world of Tinkerbell, as it were. But rather, this world in which there is a god of men and elves. Um, and that's what I mean by the myth of St. Francis. We'll go in later, as I mentioned, into the topic of hagiography uh, on what was actually, quote-unquote, real or true, what actually in history happened about St. Francis. But I'm really not going to spend too much time into it. I just want to address that at, at the beginning because I realize that might be confusing talking about the myth of St. Francis, uh, whether or not I'm meaning, well, was he real? Were his experiences real? And I just simply want to fire back and say, what do you what do you mean by real? Um Let's just jump in. I think that's probably the best thing to do. Uh, but I wanted to kind of clear the air uh, to, to let it be known that that's sort of the, the world that we're in. We're in we're, we are in, uh, in all the senses of in, we are in Tolkien's world. It would be out of place to expect the mythoi of St. Francis to have testable proofs of efficacy, just as it would be as Newman declares, quote, out of place to demand of fire, water, earth and air, their credentials, so to say, for acting upon us. Our attempts at nominalism are not unlike King Xerxes when he whipped and shouted at the Hellespont, blaming the waterway for breaking his ships and bridges. Now, the elements that we are talking about are of a different category and require a distinctive criteria for our conceptions of them. Further, as has been demonstrated with the Odyssean myth or the craving of the modern utopic end, in a book I'm a fan of, apologies for those who <laughs> don't believe this to be as refined as it might need to be, but particularly seen, I think, in Eggers' The Circle, um, there is no such thing as a myth-agnostic culture. So therefore, to bring up St. Francis here, um, at, at worst, is no worse than a default myth of our time, the same violent myth that stuffs wax in our ears um, or ties us to a mast. Of course, at best, 
St. Francis does much more than this. Let's talk about the mast of St. Francis, the things that tied him down. And that would be the status quo lifestyle of the world that he lived in. Now, of course, the metaphysical underpinnings of his world were much different than ours. Um, you know, he was infected by a world in which uh, the Catholic world was the, the norm for him. The church was central to, to it. Um, but there were still yet, uh, perhaps not metaphysically uh, caused by culture and society, the culture industry around him, as we borrow that term from Adorno and Horkheimer, but there were still struggles and hardships and violence in his time. A convert from youthful fantasies of fame and glory into a life of immense holiness and, and public reform, he provides a living and historical demonstration of a perfected self in relationship, a quinonia, by means of a new best account, the recovery of the self through a specific means, and the one that we will posit for the rest of the time that we talk about Francis, the recovery of the self through ascesis through asceticism. In the previous sections, the category of interpersonal relationships was, was explored, uh, as I posited at the very beginning, and as I've already mentioned here in this recording, this eschatological utopic goal. There is this idea that we desire as, as, a, as this uh, particular good, um, this perfection of, of things, of ourselves and others and the planet that we live on. This is a category that we might refer to as perfected desire. And I think the, the, <laughs> the sort of spoilers in our current world, this, this sort of fallen world, the one that needs perfecting, they are encapsulated in a few of St. Francis's stories. We're going to look at two. One is going to be in the story of St. Francis's bilocation as a fireball. Again, we're talking about myth here. It's fantastic. Um, and there's also the story of when he receives the stigmata um, with his vision, uh, when he has this vision, this hierarchic vision, as it were. Um, this is the second thing. We have this perfected desire aspect, and then we have this hierarchic narrative, which is seen in the, in the vision, the receiving of stigmata. But each of these categories, perfected desire and hierarchic narratives, um, are fulfilled by means of the portal of ascesis. These recapitulations and the respective images, that is to say, this first category of interpersonal relationships lead to ascetic perfected desire and are seen in the fireball bilocation story. And this idea of utopic narratives is fulfilled by ascetic hierarchic narratives and is seen in the story of the stigmata. These are the mythoi towards which the previous sections, as I've been writing them, have been working. St. Francis's life was one that was ca uh, categorized or char characterized rather um, by relative extremes. Compared to the average Middle Ages commoner, the pre-mendicant Francis lived a life of relative ease, daydreaming about the glories of knighthood and enjoying the nightlife of Assisi with his friends. Um, after his conversion, he began to live out a religious calling that, in terms of personal holiness, appeared more like the radical schismatic movements of his time, which often challenged the church, church's teachings, uh, and also, of course, the lax regulation of clerical unchastity and greed. Francis, however, the extremity of his life, from an indulgent lifestyle to one of violent penitence, violent in this new sense, the sacrificial sense that Adorno and Horkheimer uh, saw, this is redeemed by Francis's life, which shines a light on the human condition 
and instantiates him as a saint. And I'm using this in reference to the mendicant, not as an attempt to, say, convert somebody to my particular view of St. Francis, but rather to continue the world building of the mythoi of saints. We have a world, which in, in, our, in the Christian tradition, this communion of the saints who have not died and are simply gone, but still exist in this world. And they can, they can aura pro nobis, they can interact in, in this realm, even though they are in some other, in some other way. So um, this is what I mean by calling him a saint. This, this, he exists in a world in which it's bigger than just us, those who are here on, on planet earth. Um, but I also mentioned this idea of these, these radical schismatic movements. St. Francis, um, there, there was a breaking off, as it were, of the, the Catahollis, this universal church by these schismatic groups, who had, of course, valid criticisms, not unlike the valid criticisms of these modern Enlightenment thinkers and philosophers, mathematicians, and scientists. But unfortunately, with their critique came this break, this doing violence, this acosmia that came about as a result of their breaking of communion. What Francis does is interesting. He lives an extreme lifestyle in the same way that those radicals did as well. But he's able to do it still in line with church teaching. Therefore, he's able to better critique the system that they were validly critiquing. But Francis is able to keep that critique in line without the breaking of communion. So this initial introduction sets the stage for St. Francis as a faithful example. And it does present opportunities for inevitable criticisms. So, for instance, and these are relatively naturalistic, in particular, some might associate the transformation of St. Francis's debauchery, as one biographer puts it, um, to asceticism as some sort of Freudian repression. This might be dissuaded by the fact that the Franciscans all came from very different backgrounds and even so lived under the same ascetic charism. So therefore, it would be impossible to cover such a diverse set of experiences, backgrounds, and cultures by one monolithic theory of repression, right? It's, Francis does have his own story, characterized by being a POW, perhaps suffering from PTSD. But it wasn't as if there was just one guy, St. Francis. We have a whole movement of Franciscans. Uh, further, um, otherwise, uh, one might infer from all of this that Christian Catholic desire is good, and that St. Francis provide a helpful archetype, but it can't be logically argued that all people should follow his extreme example to his extreme degree. To, to put it another way, one might say, you know, I'm maybe not religious, or maybe I'm religious, or maybe I'm Catholic, um, but as a layperson, and not, not in any kind of religious order, I'm not a Franciscan myself, um, how can I be expected to live out this Franciscan style of asceticism? Uh, I'm not expected to do that any more than I'm expected to move out and live in a cave like he did. <sighs> to put it another way, one might say, because I'm not expected to find complete fulfillment in this means of asceticism, it therefore stands that it should be acceptable for me to attempt to find fulfillment in any other kind of expression that I might like. Um, However, I don't think this works. This, this second critique here that I'm mentioning points to the nature of Francis's calling, not a very specific carrying out of his calling. And though the specific carrying out is extreme, it is meant to be extrapolated to any understanding of, of how one eases a restless heart. While not all are called to the specific charism of the Franciscans, all are called for this to, to this perfection of desires 
this desire for this, this, this hopeful utopic end. So if we all desire that, and again, it seems to be that we all do, perhaps the fact that we see that Francis was able to achieve this means that there is something worthwhile, maybe not in specifics, but at least broadly speaking, in the mission, in the vision of it all, and in the action of it. So let's talk first about this first scenario, the bilocation, the, the perfected desire, seen in ascetic hierarchic desire. So the concept of the hierarchic person is introduced here as the solution, end goal, and beatific archetype of human desire. So I'm not just talking about like, wow, I want to go on a date or eat nice food. We're not talking about those desires um, or even just the desires of um, bigger things that really do matter, like uh, entering a specific school, for instance, uh, getting getting a, a promotion on a job. What we're talking here is this beatific, this finished, finalized, uh, actualized end goal that we kind of somewhere hope for, right? The idea of getting into a good school and getting a good job and finishing one's career into retirement or whatever it might be is sort of a, a, a everyday desire for the form of the good, the finalized good. So that's what we're talking about here when we're talking about a desire. It's ultimately something that mirrors this form of good. We're desiring that that final end. So this concept will be defined and illustrations will be given from St. Francis's life. So the rise of an unchecked reshaping of imagination in our time is bought, sold, managed, mishandled, with no holds barred. And it presents a new cultural liturgy driven not by mediation, prayer books, or a mysterious call to the traditions of old, but rather hustled by the whims of consumeristic fantasies. So the 21st century human being, manipulated by these powerful superstructures, is left as a mechanically separated processed husk ready to be filled with modernity's features and benefits, and all of which has left us with an empty and underdeveloped anthropology. So what is needed then is this new asceticism. Remember, we call this ascetic, hierarchic, perfected desire. One which will turn the world upside down. And I want to present this here through the lens of Sarah Coakley. And specifically, she's talking about uh, human desire in reference to sexuality. And so this term will come up here and we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about sexuality in particular as a kind of desire waiting for its perfection, um, but partially because of, of, of how Coakley here is bookending this at the beginning. She says, only a revived, purged, and lived form of ascetic life will rescue the churches from their current theological divisions and, in and incoherences over sexuality. And only the same authentically ascetic life will be demanding enough to command the respect of a post-Christian world saturated and sated by the commodification of desire. So we can see and hear the elements of the previous sections that we've come across here, right? We have the, the presentation of modernity's problems, the commodification of desire. We, we see Adorno and Horkheimer agreeing with this and saying, yeah, that's what's happened. Take a look at it. Um, we have Taylor talking about uh, how we need to have a communal bringing together of these ideas. But Coakley illustrates here, obviously there's a wider context for it, but, but this quote summarizes much, I think. There's this desire, uh, or, or there's this disconnection between various people, the world, as she calls it, um, the post-Christian world, and, and then the world of the churches, right? Um, and then there's this idea of, of, of Newman that we can see in here, this illative sense, this desire that's been awakened in us, and perhaps is most uh, obviously seen in the realm of sexuality, human sexuality, the desire for intimacy, 
intimacy and pleasure and so forth. But what Coakley is saying, <laughs> we don't find that through a, a new swipe left, swipe right app or something like that, plastic surgery, skincare, whatever. She says only a revived, purged, and lived form of ascetic life will be enough. And in fact, she says only this ascetic life will be demanding enough. Now, not demanding, again, looking at I've just mentioned this, this, this idea of sacrifice that was apparent in, in Odysseus and in modernity. Something had to be given up and put on the altar. Rather, who's doing the sacrifice here? What's, what is being applied or who is this demand being applied to? It's the one who's engaging in this ascetic lifestyle. It's the one who is, is putting themselves on the altar and being able to say, look what happens, right? This would be dangerous for you, Maybe if bought in, if one has followed the catechesis of a culture that commodifies desire to be able to, to do what St. Francis did, right? That would be difficult. It would be hard. Um, it would be violent. But the one following Francis's life here is one who's able to then say, look, take a look. Look what happens when you give up that, that thing, when you have this ascetic practice. And I think I bring this up later in the paper. But at a very basic level, we could define asceticism as making room, making room, right? One could think of asceticism wrongly from popular depictions of one self-flagellating, right? That's not asceticism. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody who makes room, therefore allowing themselves to have the clarity and the distance from the manufactured, from the, from, from the efficient, right? The servile art of those things um, to the liberal, to the open, to the to, to the accepting aspect of asceticism, which allows for desire to be truly fulfilled and not bought and sold. I want to expand this thesis from Coakley. I want to say here, agreeing with her that this ascetic life is perhaps one of the only, personally, I would say it is the only. I realize there are probably other counterclaims to that. That's what works for me. I'm going to make that claim and agree with her. It's perhaps the only compelling, compelling answer. Again, this is where that illative sense kicks in. There's actually something that gets us going here. Like Newman talked about the child um, who listens to a fairy a fairy story, uh, and then wants to dress up as a knight to go on to go on their own missions with the hobbits and Gandalf and these people. They want to they want to play dress up themselves. Um, asceticism, I think, the picture of these people get us going too. So unique to this paper, though, not just simply commenting on what Coakley is saying, is that I want to present something like the worthwhileness, the answer, not, not the answer, but an answer that can come from, uh, an answer to modernity through St. Francis and his example and his life and his mythoi, through a clear demonstration of a life driven by ascetic, uh, ascetic perfected desire in this hierarchic way. And I, and, and I hope to show that his mendicant life, mendicant life is one for which divisions, sin, misplaced relationships are worth sacrificing for, worth making room for, for the sake of the totally transforming power of a life renovated by a completely restored heart, soul, and mind. Francis's life will be examined through the lens of this desire. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy align when centered on the hierarchical ladder, leading to, as Newman said, as in a way as Socrates has, has pointed out to us, and opposite to how Odysseus demonstrated it for us, orthodoxy and orthopraxy 
remember Adorno, Adorno and Horkheimer uses this word, this, this praxis against the voyeur, uh, or uh, praxis against this voyeuristic way of being in the world. These two things align when centered on the hierarchical ladder leading to the divine self as seen by the perfected one, which is God, not shaped by a libertine false dualistic desire, but by the attributes of the divine one. As Socrates pointed us to the pantheon, Francis points us to the one who is living in this house of God, which is the Christian God, the triune unity. Those who are looking to find fulfillment in their interpersonal relationships can find completion through the imitation of St. Francis, who imitated as perfectly as was humanly possible one who was engaged in this living within the divine being, this form, this vision of the hierarchical person in relation to other beings who themselves are able to become hierarchical and the ultimate supreme being, God. We've already gone for 20 minutes simply discussing this. I'm going to pause here again for the next section. Keep in mind we have these, these two kind of main broad topics here. We have ascetic hierarchic desire. Um, we have this perfected vision. And it's seen in these two these two different ways, uh, these two different uh, episodes in his life, the uh, bilocation fireball vision and the uh, scene where he has this, the seraphic vision receives the stigmata. So we'll be talking about those two different visions and how they explain something for us in the next sections. All right, we'll, we'll close up there. <laughs>